Welcome to the next level. I'm JBL. I am here with my buddy Tim Miller and my best friend Sarah Longwell, both from the Bulwark. Guys, let's jump right into it. Uh, Tim, we have a vaccine that should be coming on November one, right? Before we get into it, I'm 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 a little disheartened about being downgraded from best friend. I was happy to take that status last week, uh, and. Um, I, I think that everybody should really understand the context of my vaccine point, uh, you know, being that this is the media organ of the capitalist wing of Antifa. Tim is just like filled with inside jokes, like because everybody get like last week. So I listened to the, the intro last yeah. week and Tim literally made a joke about fingerless love, <laughs> which like literally no one in the world would get because it's not like a universal symbol of lesbianism. It's just an old joke from when he and I knew each other in our 20s because I did, in fact, have a pair of fingerless clubs because back <laughs> in the day, both Tim and I as young people don't do this, kids, but we were smokers. and I did have gloves that allowed me to smoke more efficiently. And it seemed I'm, very lesbian-y. Yeah. It seemed like uh-huh. a lesbian wow. product. See, I have. thought you were just working super blue, Tim. And so I was just not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. But it turns out it was just a private joke about smoking. Yeah. Yeah, stupid. Then just like... 15-year-old like, jokes, the jokes that only one people like. I mean, that what what's better comedy than that? Yeah, that's fine. It was fine of you guys to do that when I wasn't here to defend myself. But I did take a, an RV to Maine and do the most lesbian vacation ever. And that's fine. That's what I choose to do. When Tim was a young person, as I knew him coming uh, out, he wore uh, glasses that were non-prescription, just <laughs> fake, just for aesthetic reasons. So just- I was so like, proud of the aesthetic glasses that I bought. I bought them in Greenwich Village. I was a young man coming to terms with my sexuality. It was, it's a beautiful coming of age anecdote, I, uh, honestly. Um, yeah, well, uh, anyway, and I guess for people don't get the inside joke, it was the American greatness folks, which is the media organ of the Trump campaign called us the capitalist wing of Antifa. And to their credit, you know, they don't do a lot right over there, but that was a well-turned phrase. I was pretty proud of them. Um, we, we had somebody on Twitter, make us a cross stitch of it. Uh, JVL tried to one up them a notch in his, in his newsletter yesterday by linking to a very kind of Marxist, uh, a column on the state of work, which you know, I, I think sort of making the argument that maybe JVL is in the mainline wing of Antifa, not the capitalist wing, but but we have Fact a lot of disagreements true. here. So anyway, on to the topic at hand: um, the vaccines. I, I I thought that the the Harris and Biden statements on the vaccines were such a wonderful microcosm of why Joe Biden won the nomination. Um, and and why he has made life for those of us in the Republican slash former Republican slash conservative slash former conservative um, uh, arena uh, much more comfortable than pretty much any other Democratic nominee would have would have made us. And so for those who, who didn't see it, I'll, I'll just the, the quick summary is this. Kamala Harris was on CNN and, and, and gave a statement that was kind of like. I guess it's okay in the grand scheme of things. Like if you if you if you um, grade her on what you what she was clearly intending to say was that Donald Trump acted irresponsibly is acting irresponsibly and rushing through the vaccine. He's a liar. You can't trust him. But but she led the statement by saying she wouldn't take a vaccine that came out before the election. Uh, because she wouldn't trust Donald Trump, and then kind of moderated that to say, unless there were, um, you know, other validators 
uh, about the fact that the vaccine was uh, was reliable, which which obviously there would be. It's not like Donald Trump would be the judge of one on on a vaccine coming out. And, and you know, given the um, conspiratorial nature of our politics right now, given the anti-vax movement, it's just kind of you know I, I felt like that statement was was toeing the line a little bit too much on the side of the conspirators and frankly as a society you know we're we're gonna have to do a sell job to get everybody on board with this vaccine on both left and right um you know because i think there are wings on both ends here that are gonna have doubts about it so biden gets asked about it the next day here's what here's what joe biden said i'd want to see what the scientists said i want full transparency on a vaccine uh one of the problems with the way he's playing politics is he said so many things aren't aren't true i'm worried that if we have a really good vaccine people will be reluctant to take it so he's encouraging people to take it he's under trump's undermining public confidence pray to god we have it if i could get a vaccine tomorrow i'd do it if it cost me the election i'd do it now that is an adult gentleman and lady um and and i just i i i have the the old there's this old donald trump meme that goes around online that's like every time the resistance thinks they got him like old donnie trump manages to wriggle his way out of the problem and i just think that's joe biden every time there's a anything that's even controversial on the left wing or the identitarian wing or the conspiratorial wing of the party he just comes out the next day and makes a responsible statement every time so anyway i was wondering if you guys had the same response to that if you guys shared uh, that view or if you thought maybe kamala uh have, have a more lenient view of kamala's response Sarah? I have a slightly more lenient view, if only because I think that Kamala falls prey to something that I think all of us struggle with, right? Which is that it is hard with Donald Trump. Uh, He makes us all more distrustful of the system, right? So I am one who very much likes to think of myself as as a non-conspiratorialist who will say, guys, things are mostly fine, relax. But, but take the, the post office situation, for example. Um, you know, I have these competing instincts where I want to say, guys, let's not overreact here. Let's not overdo it. We are further undermining our uh, sense of faith in uh, the election by making this a bigger deal. On the other side, I don't necessarily underestimate Donald Trump's ability to do something that no other president has done before. Um, and so I think that Donald Trump turns all of us like he's he 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 drags all of us into our sometimes our our worst places um, and and makes us doubt things that we would otherwise not doubt. Uh, that being said, I think that the thing that that Joe Biden what I, I agree with a lot is your assessment of Joe Biden, who um, just by virtue of being maybe it's because he's been around so long, maybe it's because he's somewhat impervious to so much of the ridiculousness as, as a person who's not very online and everything else, which is that it's not even that he wriggles out of it. He just says the most normal, like um, it's like uh, when and he talks about the violence, he condemns the violence, uh, he condemns the looting and he speaks up for uh, and he speaks against bad cops and against systematic racism. Like, he just says, like, the normal basic thing that the vast majority of people agree with, and that is his superpower, to just be normal. Regular Joe. I... So here's the thing. Biden's statement on this is just the obvious. It's the only right answer, right? And what what kills me is that only 51%, if you believe the polling of America, thinks that the guy saying the only right answer 
is the one they want to be president. Like, I just, I just don't understand this. Like you have a crazy person on the one hand who is encouraging people to vote twice and saying that they should put bleach inside their bodies and, uh, take an enema with UV lights. And then you have this other guy over there saying, yeah, we really need a vaccine and we should have it tested. And, uh, you know, if I have to lose an election, but America gets a vaccine quicker, that's fine. And yet one of these guys is polling at 51 and one of them is polling at like 43.5. Why is this? What is happening? Uh, I don't know. But We're a following sort of, people. Yeah, it goes to my point, though, about Kamala Harris, right? Like, I think I think she said the wrong thing and Joe Biden said the right thing. At the same time, like, Donald Trump is telling people that there will be a vaccine on November 1. Like, he is he is absolutely playing politics with a vaccine. And so it causes like otherwise rational people to react somewhat irrationally because he's saying crazy things. I mean, it forced nine of the major uh, pharmaceutical companies had to issue a statement making it clear that they would right. not rush through anything irresponsibly because there is like this axis of adults out there trying to come together to say, yes, the crazy lunatic who's running our country, don't worry, we won't let him make this decision. Um, and, and so- I mean, is it is it crazy that Kamala Harris would say would say what a lot of people are thinking, which is I'm not sure I can trust a vaccine under Donald Trump because he's clearly rushing things through for political purposes. And on the but we also all know we need people to take the vaccine uh, should a good one come. And so, I mean, Donald Trump really puts us in a predicament to maintain our level heads. Yeah, my husband gave the best kind of defense of Kamala and I was ranting about it on the couch um, uh, last night. And it, it was like, Trump does have this effect on people. And like, there are other particularly like, if you look at world leaders, and, and business leaders who, you know, I can't get into their soul, but who seem to be decent people who like, have played the suck up to Trump game, because that's what you have to do when we have kind of a, like I want to be, you know, tin pot authoritarian president. Um, and, you know, you see people like Tim Cook doing this at Apple and kind of, you know, shading the truth on some things. You see, you know, uh, Abe in Japan and like there's a f funny video of him rolling his eyes at Trump. But, you know, you can see him buttering him up on the golf course. And like this is what you have to do. And so, you know, do we really not? Is is it really so crazy to think that there would be a you know pharmaceutical company um, that would you know in order to kind of stay on his good side tr rush something through? I, I, I guess I, I think that that point is well taken. Um, with also the knowledge that you would presume that there are going to be many other checks along the system and that we shouldn't be saying anything that gives the anti-vaxxers any oxygen. But, um, but, but it is a well-taken point. And, and just really quick to JVL's response. I mean, after Joe Biden's convention speech, I believe I tweeted that I don't understand why the race isn't 100 to zero. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. And it just, it just seems like a 100 to zero situation. My, my question for you guys is that the real danger to to me, see, seems like it is likely to be that Trump supporters in March or S July or whenever we have a vaccine in 2021, which is when we are more likely to get one, uh, that they will not take the vaccine. For sure. Right? And, and the, 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 you know, so the same people who would line up tomorrow to take whatever the FDA pushed out because Trump said so. Uh, 
are going to become the anti-vaxxers when a vaccine comes out during the Biden administration. For sure. I mean, we saw this in focus groups, Sarah. And that kind of terrifies me for a bunch of reasons, Uh, one of which is just the public health uh, aspect for in order for vaccines to be to be truly effective on a population level. You know, they're, they're effective for you individually. But the idea is that they have dual effect. They have an individual effect and a population level effect. In order to achieve the second effect, you need to get past a certain percentage of the, the population which has been vaccinated. And uh, I, I just don't. I, I don't know how you disarm that. I don't know if there is any way to begin counteracting that now. I don't know. Honestly, I mean, we're in such a world of unreality that even if Kamala Harris had not said this, even if she had been totally perfectly, you know, hey, we're going to listen to the science, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that that would blunt what I think we see coming down the pike, which is that, again, six months, nine months, 12 months from now, when we have a vaccine, I expect that there's going to be a very substantial portion of the country, probably close to 20 or 25 percent, who is simply going to refuse on ideological grounds to take the vaccine because they're going to see it as a George Soros, Justin Bieber, Bill Gates, engineered population control, et cetera, et cetera. Well, did you know this, right? The Justin Bieber thing is part of the founding. No, no, I thought that was a funny JVL shtick. There's something there. No, no, totally. It's it's part there. There's an old video of Justin Bieber yeah, being interviewed online and somebody says, you know, are you being controlled by the pedophile Satan ring? If so, touch your hat right now. And Bieber touches. Anyway, it's a, I don't want to send you guys down the rabbit hole on QAnon, but this is a thing. I'm so, already down the rabbit hole. I stopped this listening is what, to you as soon is, as you said it was real and started Googling. This is what worries me. And I my question to you is, first of all, do you guys think this is a reasonable worry? And second of all, do you think there is any way to head this off at the pass? Can can Biden supporters, Democrats, etc., possibly defang this by not making this a Trump question on the vaccine? Because again, we're not going to get a real vaccine before November anyway. That's not going to happen. Uh, or or does it really not matter? Is this all just another function of political polarization? Sarah, you were in the focus groups more than me, but it seemed like this is a very fair concern JVL has. It is a fair concern. Um, and I've heard, uh, you know, it, it it is when you listen to real people sort of talk about it, they sort of say, hey, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but. Um, and so, yeah, there's genuine reluctance out there. Um, and I don't know that a lot of these, it's not that these people necessarily have gone down the rabbit hole themselves where they like can tell you a conspiracy that has to do with George Soros. It's more that they just swim in a cultural soup that where people say, uh, I don't know that I would take that. I don't trust it. And like just in everything, when you talk to people, the lack of trust, the now skepticism, uh, and it's, and it's like, it's like a knee jerk skepticism that has taken the place of actual discernment of like thoughtful discernment. And it's just, everybody is reflexively uh, against sort of everything. And, and Trump, this is, and this is the problem with Trump. Like the reason people talk about Trump derangement syndrome is because Trump does cause uh, these, this, this effect in people where, you know, if Trump says, uh, 
whatever Trump says, people like us that automatically then don't trust it because he lies all the time. But the problem is, is that there's another set of population that if the media says it or a Democrat says it, that they automatically distrust it. So it is a function of the polarization. Now, the way to get over it is obviously, um, you know, to have enough people do it and to have it become sort of normalized and have the pharmaceutical companies come out and say it's safe and for people to realize that it's safe. But I don't know if you saw this, that AstraZeneca just shut down its trial. Um, and, 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 and they can't, and part of it is like these trials have to go on for a really long time. Like they need a lot of data before they can just start putting this into everybody. Well, is there any reason to think that the vaccine won't be the vaccine wars won't just be the mask wars part two. And this is, you know, so the thing you say about the the foundational distrust, I actually don't think that it's about distrust, Sarah. I think that it is more about just partisanship because the, the same people who are doubting uh, the, a vaccine, you know, in theory that comes, you know, in 2021, those people would line up to take hydroxychloroquine tomorrow because the president said so. I don't think that's right. I, I think that's true of like a narrow set of, you know, Alex Jones's types. But I, I'm talking the people that I talk to, you would recognize them as perfectly normal. They're not they're not crazy. They're not trying to take hydroxychloroquine. That's not that's not what they do. And they think that Trump is is a jerk and a, and a bully. But they're just they're just not sure. And like they're like this with everything. You say, OK, well, Donald Trump, you know, talking to a group of women and you say, what do you think about the fact that Donald Trump has been credibly accused of sexual assault and harassment by over 20 women? And they're like, but has he? Is that true? I read one time <laughs> that like I mean, it's just it is it is an inherent distrust of of institutions and media. Um, I, I think that you're right about a certain group, but I think that's that's like, I'm not going to call it a cartoon sliver because that's too generous. I think the, the a group of people you're talking about is way bigger than it should be, but it is not everybody. There are like, the scary thing is the normal people that you would recognize who's part of your family, like maybe who's college educated, who still is skeptical of these things um, because yeah. of the political environment. I've got bad news for you, JVL. Uh, I think it's both. I think that like there are, pe- there are people in both the camp that Sarah's talking about and the camp that you're talking about. Um, and, and that is concerning and disheartening about the, about the vaccine. And then I think there's an additionally a third camp on the far left that is anti-vax that we, you know, that you see this a lot uh, out where I am in Northern California. So uh, all three of those combined, I think that there's a very significant chunk of folks that won't take the vaccine. Uh, I, I do think the only good news I've to offer is that, well, I do think that there will be some element of it that's similar to the mask wars. I, I think a big underlying part of the mask wars is that like, you know, dudes with beards just like don't like wearing masks. It's uncomfortable. And so, you know, rather than like whining about it, uh, they cloak the fact that they just don't want to wear it in like a political argument, you know. And so, so, um, part of the mass culture war and why it spread so far was just a simply a fact of like people, people didn't want to be inconvenienced. And so it was easy to just kind of turn it into a, turn it into a political statement rather than, rather than seeming like a whiny baby. So before we move off of this, I, I just want to bring up if there, there's a Bob Costa piece in the Washington post. I think it was this morning. It could have been yesterday where he talks to a bunch of people in Wisconsin and he talks to one woman who uh, is a big Trump supporter who said that Fox News, he used to watch a lot of Fox, but just you just can't trust Fox anymore. And where does she get her news from now? 
Oh, One American News Network, the People's Network. News oh, no. Max. Oh, no. YouTube. <laughs> she, she follows a lot of YouTubers who have some really good information. Maybe she's watching there. The Bulwark's Not My Party on Snapchat, hosted by Tim Miller. And she is a retired industrial engineer. She says so. Presumably, somebody with a college degree. Who I, this is just again. I just maybe our entire maybe we don't really have a disagreement here, except for the percentage of the pie that we think this type of person represents. And I think that as a part of the Republican Party, this person is probably twenty to thirty percent, which means that nationally they are probably ten to fifteen percent. And you, Sarah, I think, think they are smaller than that. Yes. I'd like to watch some of these YouTube programs. There's a piece for you. Yeah. Do, could we, we, maybe I'll just message Bob and ask him if he got the names of any of these guys. So, uh, okay, Sarah, you want to take it away on the voting irregularities and election fraud? Yeah. So uh, just... Oh, man, I actually had the post piece pulled up here, and now I don't have it anymore. Um, oh, there, I've got it. Okay. Great radio. Thank you. Um, so, uh, you know, JBL, uh, in his newsletter yesterday, made what I think is an excellent observation, um, something we talk about on the secret pod a lot, about how it's interesting how stable the polling environment has been, right? Joe Biden uh, has has maintained one of the most stable leads uh, against Donald Trump in history. Uh, but the reason that it is uh, the election is still so much in flux is because while the the polling environment is stable, the voting environment is incredibly unstable, right? We just we don't know there's there's this um, it, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, there is an unprecedented amount of absentee and mail-in ballots expected. Uh, people who are voting for Donald Trump register that they plan to vote in person at a tremendously high percentage where people who say that they're going to vote for Joe Biden, uh, you know, say that they're going to vote by mail at an incredibly high percentage. And so what does Donald Trump do in this uh, already unstable environment? Well, of course, he does what he did in 2016 because the guy's got a limited playbook. Um, he goes back to the well a lot. And so he starts talking about how everything's rigged. You don't say. You don't say. You can't, you can't trust mail-in ballots. He has tweeted. Now, what he, he's tweeted a number of crazy things around elections. So one of them was that we ought to move the election. Uh, that was probably suggested was maybe the craziest. He has also suggested potentially that people vote twice, once by mail and once in person and actively commit voter fraud in an effort to... I think his point is, you know, test the system uh, to make sure that it is catching voter fraud. Um, but he says, you know, he says that you you have to declare the winner on election night because he is aware that, you know, like in the case of Arizona between Martha McSally and Kristen Sinema, uh, it looked like uh, Martha McSally had won uh, the election on election night. But of course, as mail-in ballots came in over time, it became clear that Kristen Sinema was winning. This phenomenon is known as the blue shift. Um, and election night now is probably going to be an election week. We know that it, the election is going to look different because of all this mail-in balloting. But anyway, the point is, is that in that environment, the president's whole MO has been to cast just heaps of doubt on uh, the veracity of the election results and of mail-in voting in particular, and by saying that it is rife with voter fraud. And the, the uh, Bill Barr at DOJ has gone to great lengths to uh, back him up on this spurious claim. And so 
my favorite genre of article these days or video or anything is when a well-known institutional Republican comes out and finally calls BS on something the president has said. And we got one, it's a, it's a narrow, it's a, not a particularly robust genre. I wish it was much bigger, um, but we did get an addition overnight from Ben Ginsburg, uh, who is a, he's been doing election law for 38 years. He's a Republican election lawyer. He was involved in the Florida recount. Um, he has worked, you know, to, to scour uh, the, the, the country over the years for instances of voter fraud and election fraud. And guess what he has to say about the president's claims of widespread voter fraud when it comes to vote by mail? Not good. That yet is not true, that there is not widespread voter fraud, that in fact, it is an incredibly, um, an incredibly rare phenomenon uh, that occurs uh, when it does occur in both parties, um, but at uh, rates where it is like at 0.000025% um, when it happens. And, and so it is, and he basically comes out and says, um, you know, that the, the Republicans doing this are clearly, clearly meant to have an electoral purpose and uh, to advantage Republicans and try to lay the groundwork uh, for them to sow distrust in the election that is upcoming. Um, and, and it's interesting just that he felt compelled to come out and say this. So, uh, Tim or JBL, I don't really have a question there so much as a, this is just something I'm glad to see, but what are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So I will, uh, flag that, uh, Ben, uh, was my lawyer for quite a while. Um, uh, not on personal legal matters, but, uh, uh my, uh, uh, political lawyer. Uh, and so I know him well, he's a good person. Uh, he's also, for lack of a better word, just a Republican Party aparchik, and and you know, for people who don't know him, uh, he was I think made famous in the two thousand recount. Um, I forget what is that? They had an actor that looks just like him that played him in the mo- in the recount movie on HBO. Ooh, I'm going to Google that when JVL talks. Um, I forget the guy's name, but uh, he was you know enshrined there as the main kind of point person for the legal team uh, during the two thousand recount. Uh, worked for basically every Republican that you've heard of um, in the in the twenty years since was sort of wishy washy on Trump, right? But was at this big, you know, DC legal firm. Uh, one of the other people at the firm was a guy named Don McGahn, who you might have heard of, who stumbled his way into the White House um, as like the twenty seventh ranked lawyer in the GOP, uh, who ended up getting uh, uh, getting on the right horse. And so Ben was you know, by his own choice, um, muzzled basically from being able to kind of speak out about Donald Trump. And so like many other Republican apart chicks went along with the whole show here for the last three and a half years. So I do think that's why, you know, this is significant, you know, this is, um, you know, everybody can make their judgments on that, on those choices, but, um, you know, this is not kind of some, you know, never Trump lawyer, you know, uh, crazy that's in the George Conway checks and balances group of lawyers who have been outraged from Donald with Donald Trump from the start. Um, 
I think that the substance of what he said is like less interesting because it's obviously true. Like everybody knows this vote by mail has been happening in my home state of Colorado for many years now. Like there, if anything, it has helped Republicans. Like there is not widespread voter fraud related to this. Um, it is obviously true that Trump going and telling people to double vote is wildly irresponsible. If anything, the op-ed was mild on that, on that count. Uh, and so I, I think the question is, you know, whether, um, uh, uh, then will be kind of a, uh, uh, canary in the coal mine here on if Trump loses, you know, these sort of get in line, Republicans will get in line against Trump and, and make sure that the handover, uh, actually happens in a responsible manner or whether he'll just be kind of a sole, you know, op-ed writer riding in the wind, um, uh, uh in ahead of our dystopic post-election future. Yeah, so Tim, I think you have it exactly right. The the question what's interesting here is not the the piece itself, but what the piece is trying to signal. And it's clearly trying to send some sort of signal to institutional Republicans about where the conservative legal community will line up. In a way, there's like, you know, in a, in a banana republic, when the, the generals start trying to signal to, to El Presidente what the, how far they'll be willing to go and how far they won't be willing to go. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit like the, uh, the op-ed from the Federal Society guy about postponing the election. Yes. Remember that, right? Yes. Um, which came out as a brushback to try to say, hey, look, just understand, we're not going to support you. If you guys decide you're going to support Trump on this, you guys being elected Republicans and Republican uh, you know, defenders in the media, we're not going to go along with you. And I think that's what this Ginsburg op-ed is meant to signal. But the question is how real that is, because one of the things we have seen over and over and over and over over the last four years is parts of conservatism, Inc., and I use that sort of broadly to include the Republican Party itself, making these sorts of line drawings, you know, putting lines in the sand like this in an effort to alter future behavior by others in the in the establishment and then just folding as soon as Trump calls their bluff. And the, the, the perfect example of this is the Tom Tillis op-ed about the emergency funding for the wall. <laughs> yes. Right. You remember that Tom Tillis, you know, writes this blistering Amazing. op-ed in the Washington Post saying that, look, you just can't do this. You cannot do emergency funding where you take the military to fund this legislative project that you couldn't get passed. Uh, absolutely not. This is preposterous. And then I think it was 72 hours later, he voted for it. Yeah, but that's because he got primary. He was, they got, they got threatened with a primary. Yeah. He's hesitant to respond to voters in a way that like the Republican legal eagles in DC don't. There is a little different difference there. Yes. And no, I mean, they, I don't know. There are a whole lot of people who signed letters, uh, being against Donald Trump and put their, their name on op-eds denouncing Donald Trump, who then wound up whole magazine issues, perhaps working for Donald Trump or becoming his biggest defenders in in the business. I mean, it, it really comes down to self-interest, right? And there are people whose self-interest is bound up in Trump's success or or being tied to Trump and people who can afford to not do it, right? And so the Fed sock guys can basically afford, I think, to for well, some of the Fed sock guys can afford to be on the wrong side of this if they really really have to be. But the not all of them, you know, there are people who are going to want to be considered for 
judgeships going down the line, right? And who have aspirations of winding up on an appeals court somewhere or maybe the Supreme Court somewhere down the line who still have 20 years in front of them career-wise who I think will will not be willing to have that be a mark against them because they think that uh, Trumpism is at least the near and medium-term future of the party. So I, this is what I guess what I'm saying is that uh, I look at this op-ed and I'm very interested in the Kremlinology of it. Uh, but I would say that if you had looked at the the global number of these types of signals that have attempted to be to be sent over the last four years, it's only a very small minority of them which have actually wound up working. Yeah, and frankly, McGann would have been stronger. I mean, again, like on the Kremlinology side of this, like Ginsburg has been you know, a, a minimally loyal Republican during the Trump era, but, but was never, you know, going to be considered by a Trump. I, Trump probably doesn't know who he is. You know, I, I guess he was on MSNBC for a while during the last election. So he probably knows who he is from that because he watches a lot of TV. But, um, you know, it's not as if, you know, that, that it's any sort of signal that there will be clamps put among the inner circle, um, right. which is obviously the biggest problem. Uh, uh, Bob Balaban, was the actor that oh, played Bob Ben Ginsburg. Ginsburg. That's perfect. He's yeah, right on. It, that is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Sarah, you have anything else on this? No, we can move on to yours. Move on. Uh, Bill Crystal has a very provocative piece up on the site today about whether or not conservatism as we have known it since 1955, which is the founding of National Review, which basically marks the, the beginning of what we recognize as the modern conservative movement, whether or not it is now dead. And I find this to be an even more interesting question than the burn it all down Republican Party question. And I want to talk about it because I suspect that this will be our third segment fight club where we have wildly divergent views of this. And I, I am maybe I am wrong, but I would like to first call on Sarah to defend why conservatism isn't dead, which is, I think, where you are. No, am I wrong about that? Because well, I think you're going to say so conservatism is not dead. It's I didn't do the we... reading, so I didn't do the required reading. Can you just give us a brief synopsis of uh, rundown of his uh, of his argument? You mean you haven't read the chairman emeritus of the Bulwark's Bulwark article? I started it this morning, and uh, my two year old interrupted me. So well, it is six hundred words. I wouldn't want you to pull a pull a muscle. <laughs> I had to read this other, the Washington Post, that maxed me out. Can you just, just okay. hit me? So, so what Bill says is that you could say that conservatism tried to resist Trump in 2016 and failed, and that's fine. And that in 2017 and 18, conservatism thought that the guardrails would hold on Trump. And they turned out to be wrong, but at least they had a sincere belief about this. They were not compromised in an important way. In 2019, when the Mueller report came out, conservatism basically decided, look, we are tied to this guy for another year. We just, the prudential course is, you don't pull the ripcord yet. We just try to ride it out and get through this. And that's fine. Yeah, but that in 2020, with the combination of impeachment uh, the lack of mounting a primary challenge to Trump, and then the pandemic and the refusal to criticize Trump's handling uh, of a pandemic, which results in the death of 200,000 Americans. At that point, there is no way to see conservatism writ large, except as having become 
wholesale attached to and intertwined with Trumpism, which is the white nationalism and the tribalism and the total lack of ideas and the gangster government and all that. Like, there's just no longer any reasonable way in which you could disentangle these two things going forward. And so, what we knew as modern conservatism, dating back to the time Buckley, is basically dead and it exists as something else now. Yeah, so I don't disagree with any of that as an analytical matter. I think the 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 argument that I make most often is about uh the fact that we need a center-right party. Uh that it that its existence is important and that conservatism there's a difference between its ideas and its its movement. The movement that exists in institutions and organizations, all of which have been wholly co-opted uh, by Donald Trump and have um, exposed their shallowness. You know, the Heritage Foundation, um, all the media institutions, um, many of which started for sort of legitimate reasons, which is because they felt sort of shut out from mainstream institutions and, you know, wanted to have these sort of center-right homes for their thoughts and their for the ideas to 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 gestate and and be turned into policy um and they are now bereft of ideas like all oh, his his whole the analysis of the entire collapse is is correct i think though the question is is um is whether or not or the question that i ask is not whether or not it's important to vote for republicans in 2020 because for me it is not important to vote for republicans i i would uh, I would I would absolutely do what David French advises, which is to still vote for good uh, Republicans or conservatives out there that are worthy of votes. Good Republican. Yeah, well, that's what I'm just saying. But he's not even up this cycle. Like the point is, is like I I, I believe I agree with that. The problem is I can't find a single one to support. Um, there is no one. And, and frankly, I regret now the donations that I made to Will Hurd. I don't regret my Carlos Curbelo um, donations in 2018. The problem is uh, that I'm now on all of the Trump lists. And so I'm constantly being hit up for an 11 times match. And I am failing in my loyalty to the president. I don't know if you guys have seen how bullying those texts are. But anyway, um, the the thing that I just I think is important for society is that there is a responsible center-right party that has some attachment to notions of limited government, fiscal responsibility, leadership in the world. Um, but has Trump caused the movement itself to wholly abandon those? Of course he has. I agree well, with that. Well, counterpoint, Timothy, yeah. is it possible that all of that stuff that we thought was conservatism has actually been dead for a reasonably long time and we did not realize it, and that all of that center-right stuff, it actually turns out was was wrong more than it was right. Yeah, I, I'm going to go with a counter-counterpoint, which is I, 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 my view is that the, the American conservatism broadly defined. So, so Bill tries to define it as the whatever founding of the National Review in 1955 and it peaks with Reagan and now it's in hospice care and something else will form out of the ashes. Ah. I don't know if I sort of agree with that. I think that's maybe the story that we want to tell ourselves and want to hear. Um, we being, you know, conservatives who believed in in these sort of, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. magazine think tank arguments of conservatism during our formative years. But, but maybe American conservatism really just is kind of a more 
libertarian, don't tread on me version of European conservatism. And that a lot of these more classical liberal values were like being held in place by a small cadre of elites, um, you know, in Washington who, who wanted to maintain them. Um, and that the, and, and that those really were what they were. They were liberal, like values of liberal democracy, not val- the values of American conservatism. And that the values of American conservatism are, you know, I want to be able to keep my guns and that, the government should be able to get off my back and that, that Hollywood and the coastal elites are bad and whatever, therefore, I'm against. And that has kind of been the engine of American conservatism from the start, in which case it's alive and well. I thought I thought about this for about 10 minutes. So I, I did the homework on like Sarah, but, um, you know, you're usually not supposed to. Uh, uh, vamp on on such weighty matters after ten minutes of consideration, but that's that's where I landed on first blush. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that because I've spent a lot of time thinking about my role in you know <laughs> my role, which sounds very grand, but I mean in the the smallest possible cog sense, you know, the role I had in preparing the way for something like Donald Trump to happen, and without being grandiose, there are a whole bunch of things now which I look back on where I had over the course of 20 years conversations with liberal friends who would tell me that actually conservatism was terrible and evil and all of it was just uh, just a Potemkin village constructed to disguise uh, deep-seated racism and stuff like that. And I would just say, no, you don't understand. Have you read John Locke? You know, and and I would say, yeah, this is really about ideas and about the full flowering of the human experience and da 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 da. And now I look back on it and I think to myself, huh, you are impossibly naive. And that a whole, I mean, first of all, what most people should understand is that neither conservatism nor liberalism has a monopoly on the truth. The idea is always that these things exist as a yin and yang, and the interplay between the two of them is what, when directed in a healthy way, results in a society which progresses along a wise path, right? It, that said, uh, it seems to me that conservatism was probably, at least during my political lifetime, wrong about more than half the things which it thought and uh and the the left was probably right about more than half the things that it thought no who you're taking me down a different path here i was already having to disagree with bill i don't that could be right i don't know i'd have to think about it more um uh, i i certainly think that that the i would agree with you on this part that the animating elements of the conservative voter, not the conservative elites, but the conservative voter, and, and maybe the animating elements of the conservative elites were wrong too, but let's just put that aside for a second. But the, for the conservative voter was, were things that were basically embodied in Trump. And, and if they were not wrong, they certainly were against my values, um, that they were probably wrong. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I mean, I think that is sort of a question for another day, um, which I'd like to spend more time on thinking about kind of which elements of our mo- the movement that we thought we were part of was right and which parts were wrong. Um, but I-, I guess, you know, on, on the matter at hand, I-, I don't know that that's relevant to the question of 
of you know whether that movement is dead. And I, so, I guess I would say that like maybe the very wrong movement is alive and well would be my answer. Wrong and alive. So Sarah, let me ask you this then, and, and maybe this is the way to wrap this up. To what extent does it matter if the ideals as they exist in the minds of the elite wind up being very different from the impulses and beliefs of the people who actually make up the main body of a movement out in the world. So do, I mean, does it matter? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe this is always the truth that at the, the top end of the intellectual pyramid, you have people who have ideas and the main body follows those ideas for good reasons and bad reasons and no reasons. And I, I don't know. So t- tell me what you think about that. I think this is just, it's, it's really big and broad and complicated question that I'm not sure uh, I can do justice with without thinking about it in a bigger way, because the thing is, is I think it's not just that it's not that it's all been a lie. There is a lot of different factors at play here. Things are, there is political realignments going on. The party is changing in fundamental ways. You know, Charlie has this formulation that I've always sort of liked that, that answers the specific question that you just asked, which is, you know, there was always a strain of the populist nationalist as part of the conservative movement going way back to Nixon and Reagan. Um, but it was a it, that that gene was recessive and it is now dominant um, in a way that it was not before dominant. And I, I don't know how to answer in in short form the idea of how did that equilibrium shift and at what point did it and how much of it is part of um you know, things that were always existed in terms of the way that the voters, uh, you know, looked at issues versus actually people changing their minds about things. Because take, let me just take, I'll take one example that's concrete, that is very formative for all of us. The Republican Party today, Trump's Republican Party, is so anti, let's just say war, but is also anti, uh, you know, international institutions, the UN, NATO, um, essentially, it seems to be against, in many ways, the Western liberal world order, um, which is not the case. It's the it is the opposite of the case when we were 22, right? When we were 22, uh, the the world order was about American leadership in the world. It was about people were talking about the the uh, the end of wars because we were going to have democracy everywhere. And of course, we went in the exact opposite direction. And those are like big, massive cultural forces that are having enormous impacts on our politics right now um, that I don't think you can just say, uh, you know, it like while I would I would admit that uh, the party is certainly more there is more sort of racism and grievance animating the party than I than I would have thought. Uh, and that I would have sort of defended against in my 20s. I just think there's like, it's so much bigger than that. There's so much more going on. It's so much more complicated. I think that's probably right. We'll have to do a whole show on this. Anyway, we've run long, so we should wrap up here. Uh, thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Tim. Guys who are listening, please do us a solid. Can you rate the podcast? Just mash the five-star button. And then if you have an extra 15 seconds, leave a comment or review. Rank we, us in the comments, actually. We, just we rank have been one, two, three rocket uh, marry fuck kill is that what you're thinking yeah sure do that or do that um and uh so anyway we, please do that and we are rocketing up the itunes although they don't call it itunes charts anymore but the problem is that currently we are behind the matt gates podcast and this is why i'm asking you to to do it so Two if you slots go in behind matt gates it's outrageous make it end 
So if you guys can, this is literally true. If a whole bunch of you rate us five stars over the next 48 hours, we will pass Matt Gates. So please do that. Help us out. Thanks a lot. We'll catch you next week. Bye.